How much of, of, of chapter 3 did we learn? We did not read any text. We did not read anything, right? Okay. Um, so if you could again please put your smartphones in the um, smartphone bin. Okay. So now we are going to start chapter 3. I am going to make an assumption that everybody has a good memory of what we learned yesterday. Um, I'm doing that despite... Are you recording me? Are you recording me? No, I wanted to take that. Can you not take the picture of me in it? Can we do the picture that way? Thank you. I prefer my picture not being around. Thank you very much. Okay. Is it recording? Yeah. There's all sorts of weird things that happen at the beginning of class. <laughs> I did. I handed out a paper. There's also books here. So if you don't have a paper, there's four more times. What happened to the papers that I handed out yesterday? All right. Okay, we're going to start chapter three. But before we do, I'm taking, I'm taking bets for how many lines we're going to get through today. Um, we're going to actually read text. You're going to get, we're going to, you think we're going to get through five lines? Wait, lines or words? Lines, lines. Two. One in Hebrew, two in English. To the first comma. Consists of ten faculties. Okay, we'll see. Okay, people think we're going to get to the first. Well, actually, that's the second comma, but okay. Now, each distinction and grade of the three, nefesh, ruach, and neshama. So yesterday we spoke about nefesh, ruach, and neshama. Um, I'm not going to go back over it now, but it will obviously come back up as we're continuing. But these, for right now, are three levels of the soul. Consists of ten faculties. Okay. What's a faculty? A part. What? What's a faculty? A mode of getting somewhere. A mode of getting somewhere. That's very good. Yeah. A faculty is some kind of way of accomplishing something. Okay? So, so the Hebrew uses the word bechina. Bechina is a very vague term. It means aspect. But later on, the, 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 the term that's actually used here, which is why the translator, I think, picked faculties, is koyach, which means ability or power. Or if you really sound really fancy, a faculty. Okay? So... Before we move forward, let's just familiarize yourself with the term, okay? Um, there are things out in the world that have sizes and shapes, yes? You can become aware of the size and shapes of those things, yes? How do you do that? Senses. What? Senses. Well, which sense? Looking, touching. Well, looking tends to be the, the, the primary one you use, right? What? Sometimes. Yeah, that's primary. You, 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 most of the sizes and shapes of things you use, yeah, you, see. you see, right? So you have a faculty of sight, 
which allows you to get to the place of awareness of the sizes, shapes, distances, and colors of things, right? Okay. Um, and it's very good for that. It's not very good for a bunch of other stuff. What's, what's sight not good for? Understanding. understanding. It's not good for understanding. Okay. For instance, you have a faculty of sight. You know what else has faculty of sight? Birds are really good at it. Birds. Okay. Yeah. And does their being really good at sight make them therefore really good at understanding? So from the fact that what makes them good at picking up sizes, shapes, distances, and colors doesn't make them really good at understanding means that that's a separate faculty, right? So if you want to think of how many faculties you have, you think about how many different ways you can be better or worse at, at accomplishing some kind of function. And if, there, if you can be better at one and worse at the other, well, those are two independent faculties. But if every time you're better in one, you're also better in the other, and when you're worse in one, you're worse in the other, well, that really means that those two things are being accomplished by the same faculty. Does that make sense? So, for instance, if you are really good at lifting heavy objects, okay, um, you're also probably really good at preventing things from being lifted. So, for instance, if you put your hand under the heavy object and lift it up, you can get it hot. If you're really good at getting heavy objects up by lifting your hand up, if you put your hand on top of it and someone tries to lift it, you're probably pretty good at doing what? Preventing it from being lifted. Because you have a separate lifting faculty and a separate preventing lifting faculty. You have two separate faculties. Or if you're just, if you have strong muscles, if you're strong, you'll be able to do one or the other. It's, it, right? The fact that you are physically strong enables you to do both. Or to use a, a, an even more benign example, it's very rare that somebody is really good at turning left and really bad at turning right. Yeah? Like, I mean, what? No, I'm talking about walking. Walking. No, I'm saying like if you're, wa- if, if you're walking, if you're, if you're walking, right? So you have a faculty that allows you to like, you know, control the, the, speed of, the, the, the speed at which you change directions, right? And if you're good at turning left on a dime, you're probably equally good at turning right on a dime because it tends not to be two separate faculties. Now, the more you think about this, you realize that you might really want to group faculties together. For instance, seeing has a bunch of sub-faculties, such as some people are colorblind. So you can then take seeing and divide it into differentiating colors, shapes, and distances are actually three distinct sub-faculties of the faculty of seeing. Right? So if you have one eye, what are you really bad at in seeing? Distance. Distance. Distance and depth, which are really the two, two sides of the same thing. But that doesn't really impact your ability to see shape or color. And being colorblind doesn't really impact your ability to see distance. Right? So a faculty is the way you accomplish something and get something done. Right, the way you're able to, to, to function in some way. And the reason why you break them up into different faculties is, is improvement or growth in, in the ability to do one thing automatically imply the ability to do something else. And so you can group them into more fundamental groups like seeing versus understanding. And then you can break that down more particularly in saying seeing has a bunch of sub-faculties. Yeah? Would it be more correct to say that it's a mode of accomplishing something that has, like you said, subcategories of accomplishing that thing, or that it often works in conjunction with other modes that also accomplish the same thing? 
No, the idea of breaking something into breaking something into different faculties is that is that their the use and growth and ability in one is independent of the use and growth and ability of the other. So with Sphero, we would say they're completely I, independent. I don't, I, I don't know what Sphero are. I didn't count Sphero. Sphero. I, I stopped either. at faculties. <laughs> I didn't see any spheres. I don't know. Nope, nope. There's so no spheres in, in my text. At least not to where I stopped. <laughs> okay. Okay. So. So the soul consists of ten faculties. Okay. Well, what does that mean? Yeah. Sorry, we're saying that these faculties are independent of one another. Yeah. Are they each distinction and grade of nefesh ruach and neshama has these ten faculties? Yes, so but there's lots of sets of ten. That's right. But we're gonna get to that later. Are we talking about whether those are all independent of each other? We'll talk about that later. Okay. okay. So if you have two faculties, you could grow in one and neglect the other. You could grow in, right? The, the, you could grow in another and neglect the, neglect the first. Okay? Some might be stronger in one and weaker in the other. Okay? Yes? Can you say independent when you No, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. We don't, we, we don't, no, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be completely independent in all manners because nothing is completely independent in all manners. But it has to be independent enough that it makes sense to think of them separately. If you want to think about it like this, you can think about it biologically for a second. Okay? How many, how many different systems do you have in your body biologically? So many. What? So many. How many? Okay. Give me a number. Cardiovascular. Respiratory. Respiratory. Nervous. Phatic. Uh, reproductive. Reproductive. Now, why are, we, why are we splitting the body up into these different systems? Right. Can they function independently of each other? Now, does that mean they function absolutely independently of each other? Like if your nervous system completely shuts down, right? For the most part, everything else is going to go, right? But you can have problems in the nervous system, right? And dealing with them completely in the nervous system and their effects on the function of the cardiovascular, right? So for instance, we spoke about yesterday about people being in a coma, right? In principle, is that a problem of like your heart and lungs and circulation? No. Okay. Um, people can have problems with the reproductive system. Doesn't mean problems with their immune system. People have problems with their immune system, right? And so some people. Now, ultimately, as you start thinking about it, you realize that the person functions as a whole, as a whole, and things influence each other. But you can get stronger and weaker in problems and fixing them in these systems somewhat independently of another. It makes sense, therefore, to understand them and think of them independently because they do, on some level, operate independently from each other. But that doesn't mean they're all islands onto themselves and like, you know, you can just destroy the cardiovascular system and then have the rest of the person be completely functional. Okay. And similarly, when we talk about faculties in any sense. So if you, if you for instance, take a company, a company of different departments, let's say, what are, what, why would you break up a company into different departments? What's the point of doing that? It's more efficient. More efficient, right? Different departments do different things, right? And they're, and they're relatively independent from each other. Now, does that mean they're absolutely independent? No. No, but if you, you want to identify, is the issue that we're not billing properly or the issue is we're not delivering properly, right? Why do we care about efficiency? Because efficiency is how to get things done. Now, it is, an, it is a tricky issue because when, when you think, care about efficiency, you're often making judgment calls of what is worth getting done. So when you talk about efficiency like an, like an economist does, that ends up messing with your life, and I don't think you should think about it. But if you think of efficiency in terms of the things that are really valuable, then, then 
and you know the idea of efficiency in that broader sense is you know just a normal way of like why waste resources and abilities. Okay. Yeah. Um, when we when you gave the biological example, and I know like examples are limited, but let's say the reproductive system seems to be more independent than the cardiovascular system because you can completely shut down a person's reproductive system, and that, as far as I understand, doesn't really affect all the other stuff. Whereas, right. Like you said, you can not shut down the nervous system or the cardiovascular system without affecting everything else. Right. So, are is there are there like more and less independent? Faculties here, or not necessarily? Well, let's think about it like this, yeah? It would make sense that these faculties, while on the one hand being somewhat independent from each other, also in some way influence each other, right? Right. And it would be kind of foolish to suppose that everything is like in a perfect symmetry because like when was the last time you saw anything in reality, psychologically, physically, spiritually, where everything is a perfect symmetry? So therefore, not knowing what's going to come later... My standing assumption would be is that these probably are somewhat independent of each other, different ways of accomplishing different things that are independent of each other. And on the other hand, they do influence each other and probably in very distinct ways that might be helpful to map out, which might be why we have a whole chapter. That would be my assumption going into it. I could be wrong. Okay. So far, so good? Okay. What is the meaning of consists of? Is made up of. Is this right? Mm -hmm. Can I borrow this? Go for it. And I do not want to deal with anything that is beyond what a child can appreciate, okay? So if you start talking about atoms, I'll give you a glare. Okay. I'm, I'm thinking of my six-year-old son. That's the level of analysis we want to deal with. Okay? He's brilliant, but he's still six. Um, what is this? Let's start there. What is this? It's a pouch. Can all agree it's a pouch? Okay. What does a pouch consist of? Fiber. Fabric. A zipper. Fabric. Something to keep it closed. Okay, it's kind of broken. It's broken, so we won't do that. <laughs> what else? Well, now here's an interesting thing. There's a little loop for your finger, maybe. Well, here's an interesting thing. Let's think about this. If we cut off this loop, is it still a pouch? Yes. So we can really say the pouch consists of this loop? No, because it's still a pouch. This pouch does. Well, this is the this is this is this is the thing. When we say when something consists of something. We are talking about what are the parts that constitute the thing? What are the parts that, as they fit together, make the thing? If I take this part off, is it still a pouch? So is this part of making it a pouch? It's nice to have, right? My wife has something without this, actually. It's a pouch, a little smaller, without this. Now, if I took part away this fabric, would it be a pouch? No. I could take away this fabric. Oh, I thought there was a lining, sorry. I could take away this, oh, yeah. Can I take away this fabric? No. And it be still be a pouch? No. Just, be a Just be a zipper with oh. a little right. That wouldn't be a pouch, <laughs> right? It'd be a zipper <laughs> and a loop, right? That's not a pouch. Okay. So so this fabric. Now you say we don't have to do this fabric. Another fabric. Fine. But this fabric, or something that plays the same role as that fabric, right? So a pouch consists of some kind of material. And we say, okay, what are the characteristics of the material that make that make it suitable for being part of a pouch? It's flexible, right? It's um, not too porous, right? 
it's relatively light, things like that, right? It's also closed. It's not like... Okay, then that can say, well, it does not, fabric is not enough. I also need something to serve as a seam to give it that shape. So I could say that this pouch consists of fabric and with something to hold it in the particular shape with something to allow it to, so that it can contain things with something that allows it to be closed and opened. That's what it consists of. Are there other things that are true about this pouch? Yes. But, I, but that's not the same thing as saying the pouch consists of those things. Okay? Consists of or what are the parts of the thing that make the thing be that kind of a thing? And if you take away those parts, it's not that thing anymore. It's something else. Or you've disassembled the thing. Yeah? In this case, um, it seems like the zipper's not working. Well, what we say, we have to differentiate between lacking and broken. It's a very simple distinction. Okay. Or, all right, and... Yeah, but also a pouch is supposed to, like, zip up and hold things inside it. So if the zipper isn't working, it can't really... They don't... Yeah. And we call it, so we can say... turn it over, it'll still... Yeah, but the zipper, though, what about, like, a kangaroo pouch? Like, that can still hold... Fine, fine. Uh, so, so this goes into the issue that if you're a philosopher or a lawyer, then you debate what do things consist of? What make, what are the constituent parts of said thing, right? So, you know, let's take an example. Yeah. Murder. What does murder consist of? Death. Okay. Are all deaths murders? No. No. Okay. So we need more than death. Death is not enough. Death by another's hand. You need death by another's hand. So the death has to be caused by someone. What will, that someone has to be. Be two people. Purpose. Intention. Intention. Intention? Do you know what? One second, one second. Do you see what happens here? We can stop at this point. We've illustrated the point. Do you see what's happened? Is that there is, a, there is something. In this case, it's a legal concept rather than a physical item. Right? And then there's, well, what does it consist of? Right? And by the way, in different legal systems have different <laughs> answers to those questions. For instance, in, according to Torah law, does murder require intent? No. no. Now, there's a differentiation between what's called um, ritzicha, which is murder, b'shoigeg, unintentionally, and ritzicha b'mezid, intentionally. There's even something in the middle called karv l'mezid, close to intentional. But now, in other legal systems, there's a something called manslaughter, right? As distinct from murder. Now, I don't want to get into why you would do that, but... But so the discussion of what does something consist of mean or what are the parts that are necessary when that they're configured properly, they make that thing be what it is. So if I say, well, what does an eye consist of? Right? You can't tell me your eye color. Because if your eye color would be different, it would still be. Right. But if there's no retina or something that functions like a retina, then it's not an eye. Right. We're all clear on that. Remember high school biology? Okay. Yeah. Is this? Or is something consisting? Okay, wait. Rewind. Are these types of qualities they have to speak to like the essence of that thing? Is how does this compare to when we talk about essences? Oh, very good, very good. So in other words, they can when something consists of something in order for that for that essence for that kind of a thing to actually exist, you need these parts, and these parts usually need to be arranged in some kind of a way. And if you have those parts arranged in that kind of way, then you have the thing. And if you don't have those parts, then you don't have the thing. And so having the thing is having the essence of the thing. Yeah. Now, that's, this is going to become a deeper discussion. Okay. So let's just let, let's, let's, um, use a few examples, okay? 
Um, what does a human being consist of? Are you willing to say what a neshama is in words that my six-year-old can understand? Like a soul. What's a soul? Okay, well, that's not helpful. What about thoughts? Okay. So, if, so let's, let's ask the question. If something lacks thought, can it be a human being? Yeah. Give me an example. Ariel Sharon. Okay, but now let's think about that. Let's think about that. Is that are, are we? Is that saying that there's lacking thought as a matter of principle, like, or that something is broken in the thinking mechanism? It's lacking thought because it ought to have thought. Okay, fine. But right. I think vegetables, so like people who are in the vegetative state, so think sometimes. Maybe that's an interesting debate. Well, there's a whole question of what an actual vegetative is, different vegetative. <laughs> but let let if a person is not thinking. Right? Do we say they cease to be a person, or do we say that they're a broken person? Well, you want to know the answer to this question? The answer to this question is whether you believe that brain death is death, or whether you believe brain death is not death, because what does brain death mean? The brain is dead. And therefore there's no more? Thoughts. So... That, that the argument that brain death should be death is that if there's no more thinking going on in any way, shape, or form, then you don't say it's a person and the thinking part is broken. You say the, dead person the, the, the person is no longer. So yeah. but, but here's the thing. Either way, either way, both of those opinions are taking the view that a person consists of thinking. One person just says that when the brain is so damaged that no thinking can take place, it doesn't mean the person is gone. It means the person is broken. And the other view is saying that, that, that once it gets that kind of damage, it's no longer a person. But both are using thinking as a constituent part of what it is to be a person. So something which in principle has no thought doesn't qualify as being a person. So cops are not people because, at least as far as we know, they don't think. But what about a, like a, a newborn baby? So then we can say... <laughs> so what most people's intuition is on the matter is they would say that they have a thinking, but the thinking is the thinking is in very early stages of development, right? So this requires us to introduce more concepts called the broken and undeveloped potential and things like that. But we would differentiate between a dead person and a rock from a baby or a person whose thinking is incapacitated, right? Because we think of thinking as, as being something that a, can, constitutes a person. Now, are there other things that constitute a person? Yes. Can I cycle on back to the dead person and a rock? Yeah. There's also a huge distinction. We say a dead person, <coughs> and I can't treat a dead, by halacha, I can't treat a dead cat and a dead person in the same way. Right. Because even though that person certainly is not thinking or and does not have the neshama in the body or whatever, like all those other things that we usually say, like, this is what makes a person, but that dead person still has so many halakha, <coughs> so there's so much Torah around how that body. That still is a person. So, so there is a difference between, some, between something which was once something yeah. versus something which isn't something. Um, so right. it's not that the dead body is a person. It's that the dead body used to be part of a person and therefore it's accorded certain respect. But it's not, but it's not a person. Even though we say that's a dead person. Right. So, so there's an ancient Greek philosopher who said that if you 
I mean, this was his analogy. If you cut off someone's hand and you leave it on the table, it's a hand and name only, meaning people use the word hand, but they don't mean the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, there are sometimes we have to be clear that the way we speak reflects an ease of communication and not a precision of concepts. Right, that we're not using the words to precisely say what we mean. We're using the words to convey and relying on the other person. They have a sense of what we're talking about. So whenever it says a dead person, they don't think, oh, you mean there are people that are in a state of being dead and there are people just like us, just like you know, there's, there's short people and smart people and, and funny people and dead people. Like, no, everybody knows that's not what we mean by dead people, right? We mean that there is a person who once was and no longer is and maybe there is something that relates to the person who once was, the body they used to inhabit, possessions they used to own and for convenience sake we use the term dead people but we don't actually mean that there is a person walking around or existing in a state of being dead unless you believe in zombies or vampires or something like that. No, fine, okay. I stand corrected. All right. So, if, so... Now, again, there doesn't have to be agreement about what things consist of, but the very idea that we, the very idea we think of things, we, 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 have, we have a sense of what something consists of. We, we, and often there isn't agreement. That's why people disagree about, you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, I'll give you an example, okay? Um, and I'm picking this intentionally because of its controversial nature to illustrate the point. Okay. Um, my kids go to school. And in school, in kindergarten, they learn about this thing called a family. Okay? And how many parts are there in a family that they learn about in school? In their school, probably 16. There are five. <laughs> One for each finger. There are five. A family consists of five parts. A mom, a dad. A mom, a dad. Girl, boy, baby. Brother, sister. Right? Girl, boy, baby. What gender is the baby? Well, the thing is, on the, level of, on the level of baby gender isn't relevant. Like, I have a newborn baby, and basically the way you deal with a you know, few-week-to-month-old infant, gender is irrelevant. But then there is a stage at which gender... Like, on the practical, day, like, like on the practical daily living, like, the, the, way the, the, the way the mother is, and the way the father is, and the way the boys are, and the way the girls are, those are all distinct roles within the family. But then the baby is an entirely different thing. And, you know, a six-month-old, a six-week-old boy and a six-week-old girl, same diaper changing, the same whatever, doesn't make a difference. Okay. Now, would everybody agree that those are the constituent parts of a family? No. No. But that is, that is, that is a viewpoint, right? That this is a family. Now, the thing is, we're saying is like this, that you could have families, and you're probably thinking, well, what if you have a family that doesn't have a baby or doesn't have boys or doesn't have girls, right? So we can then have more sophisticated concepts where we can think of the, we can think of, right, so say if we, if we use like the example of a body, right, we could say that a body consists of arms and legs, right? But we also understand that some people are, God forbid, unfortunately, missing an arm and a leg. It would be nice if they had them. So we can say that certain parts allow for the complete and fullness of the thing, but if it's lacking, it's still there, right? So a complete or full body has arms, but lacking arms doesn't make it not a body. So you ha- can start having to develop more concepts like a complete version versus a minimal version. What is, so, the, what is the difference between incomplete and broken? That's a very good question. Right. Um, I would say that the difference is that incomplete means that that element is lacking entirely, but it can still function as the thing that it is. So like an ar- if a person is missing, God forbid, an arm, still ha- they still have a body that allows them to be human beings. 
Whereas if a person has a broken arm, that means the arm is there, but it's, the arm itself isn't working. Okay, so for instance, we can differentiate between the zipper not working versus if the zipper is detached. Right? Okay. My point is that consists of, has to do with something that are more essential, more tied to what the thing is and ought to be, rather than just anything that happens to be true about it. And so changes in what something consists of are actually changes in something fundamental, something profound about it, and not just arbitrary. So changing the design on this is not really a profound change in terms of being a pouch, right? Changing your hair color is not a profound change in your body. Removing the zipper is a profound change on the level of a pouch, pouches are not that profound, and God forbid losing an arm or the ability to speak, those are profound changes in the level of being a human being. And the idea is, the, the idea of the, why they tell the kids in school, that, that, is that you know, within the family living, you know, that kind of nuclear family, these are basically, you know, every person in the family is going to fit into one of those five um, slots. Yeah? Is it relevant that when you speak about that, you're going to have to address, like, okay, so you can have five girls, sisters, whatever you call them, but you can't have five moms. And then if you don't have a mom anymore, that's still a family, even if you don't have a new mom, right? And, like, you can have multiple babies, but then, like, babies also become, like, is it is it relevant to our, to what we're talking about to say that, like, those, that's very complicated. Like, sure, it has five parts, but, like, even, I'm sure, of the family who exists in that preschool, there are all kinds of instanti- instantiations of that. Right, but, but the thing is, children are, 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 are surprisingly intelligent, and they are aware that, that you have, this is a constituent parts, and this is how the thing operates, and then sometimes weird things happen, the same way children are aware that sometimes people are missing an arm. But, but like, they, don't therefore, they don't therefore think that, therefore, that, that, that human bodies come in, in just, there, there's some kind of like an equivalence between human bodies with arms and human bodies without arms. So those, what, the, point that, the point that I think that, that, that this gets at is that when you speak about something consists of, you are both making a, you're both taking a stand and you're making a kind of a value judgment. You're saying this kind of, this is what makes this kind of thing what this is. These are the things that are necessary for it to be what it is. These are the things that are necessary for it to be full, its full self. Lacking these things means that it's, 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 it's less than it ought to be. If some of these things aren't working, it's broken and other things just don't matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like, Five sisters doesn't make it a worse family or a less complete family, but two moms does by that value system. Well, no, you would say this. Two moms is not a family. Right, but five sisters... Is a family that excels in one thing and is lacking in something else. And so there's a whole aspect of family life that doesn't exist in that family. And when you're saying there's two moms? No, when there's five sisters and no boys. No, no, no. You can, have, you can have everyone else, but also four, like you can have these five people and also four sisters, right? So that doesn't change the value of the family, like meaning... Because the, because the children understand, because, well, I mean, the, the thing is that children don't, often don't need things explained, they just need things labeled, is okay. that children get that a, a mother is a unique role and a father is a unique role and sisters and brothers, there are multiple roles of, and babies are multiple roles of, but there is something... Um, inexchangeable between brothers and sisters and babies, which is that brothers and sisters go to school and babies don't. Okay. Brothers and sisters, um, the, you know, girls like candles and boys make kiddish and girls wear skirts and boys wear yarmulkes and babies don't do any of that. 
So like they, they, they have a very clear sense. And then mothers are the kind of thing that there's only one of in per family. Like, like, they, you don't, they, it's not incredibly complicated. So when you're talking about constituent parts, you can have, like, this is the kind of part that you can only have one of if you that's have right. two that's unhealthy. This that's is right. the kind of part that the more you have of it, the better. But if yeah. you have none, that's unhealthy. Yeah. And people get, and this, so, this, so, uh, so when, you're, when, you, when you make a statement, something consists of these things, you're, it, it's actually not just a simple observation. Okay? Now, why am I telling you this? Why are we just like rushing through this? It's seeming like, like you know, belaboring a point. And the reason is because Chassidus is full of discourses that say that the soul does not consist of faculties. Which creates a problem. Now, what does that mean that the soul does not consist of faculties? Does that mean the soul lacks faculties, doesn't have any faculties? That's right. In other words, it's true that this has a design on it, right? But the fact that it, it doesn't, cons- the design is not one of its constituent parts, right? So does the soul have faculties? Sure, it has faculties. But if you want to break down a soul as to what makes up a soul, what makes a soul be of the soul, and we're talking about the godly soul, faculties are not its constituent parts. Right? What are the constituent parts of the soul? Does anyone know? Like, what is the soul made of? What do you need to have in order to have a godly soul? God. God. Well, God is everywhere, so that's not going to help us. What is the God? So let me ask you a question. When, when we spoke about people being thinking beings, right? And you start asking about, about you know, people who are comatose and children and babies and how to make all these complicated concepts of potential and like brokenness, right? That was in order to preserve the status of being a human being on things that don't obviously have thought, right? So what's a baby? It's a person because it's, it, has, it has the potential for thought that's being developed, right? And what's a comatose person? A person whose thought function is broken. Now... Would you rather have, this is a very, very sensitive question, but we'll, we'll make it less sensitive to start with. Would you rather have a potential table or an actual table, all things being equal? Actual. Actual. actual table. Would you rather have an actual table that's whole or a broken table? An actual whole table rather than a broken table, yeah? So we can, we can say that there is a hierarchy of value in having a whole actualized thing than the, than the potential or broken thing, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if we now apply that back to people, what does that say if we think about people as thinkers or understanders? Are all people equally people? You guys ever read Animal Farm? I was just thinking. All animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. All people are people by virtue of the fact that they have thinking capacity. But not all of our thinking capacities are the same. And therefore, perhaps we should ascribe more significance and moral weight to full-fledged people, you know, intelligent, educated adults, and less moral weight to small children, the mentally handicapped, the comatose. Now, do some people subscribe to that kind of a moral philosophy? Yes. Yes. Um, Do some people find that kind of moral philosophy abhorrent? Which means, now the people that find it abhorrent, what are they intuiting about people? What, are, what, what, is a, what do being a person consist of? Does it consist of thinking? No. No, it consists of something else. 
It might, it might be associated with thinking, thinking about some relationship, but it's not really, it can't be understood in terms of thinking. And therefore, where you're holding in terms of your thinking doesn't really tell you about how much of a person you are. Nothing, so you can you can you can make it consist of a few things, but to make it simple, I'm just using thinking versus not thinking to illustrate this point. But you can make it more. I mean, you can have more versions of this. Like you could also you could include things like um, the ability to experience pain, pleasure, hopes, dreams, right? But why can't we thinking one of the things it consists of? Because if thinking is one of the things it consists of, then when you're lacking and in that thing. And when you're lacking in one of them, you are either not a person or less of a person than someone who has that, right? So, here's an interesting thing. I'm going to tell you a Mishnah, and you tell me what's wrong with the Mishnah, okay? If you don't know what a Mishnah is, you can ask a Shlucha later. The Mishnah says that killing a one-day-old infant is considered murder. What's wrong with that Mishnah? As opposed to? As opposed to a few hours old. Okay, so, so, so one day old meaning the day of its birth, not it's past the day, if so I speak correctly. A baby who is even on the day of its birth, to be more accurate translation. Because if the mom's going to die, I don't know, the mom dies. The mom's going to die in childbirth. The... Well, has the baby been born? Yeah. Well, then it's not a baby, then it's, then it's a fetus, that's something else. Is it killing anything murder? Anything? Well, I, mean, ki- I mean, killing an ant is not murder. Anything killing an ant is not murder. It's not murder, which it's not. Hmm? Is it a problem that we have to single that? Yeah, why do we have to say that? <laughs> Like what? There's a rule about about the mission, which is never says something that's obvious. Because if it's obvious, like why why say it? Like everybody knows that. Like isn't it obvious that killing a baby, you know, the day it's born is considered murder? Is that obvious? Unfortunately, not. It's not obvious. In Roman law, a father has the right to kill their children. Why? In many societies, if a child has not fully developed. If a child is not full, now this again is not in the modern world, but if you go into the ancient world, if a child is not able to speak, they're not really considered a person yet. Many many cultures, in fact, the the, the Jewish law in this matter was the was the exception rather than the rule in ancient times. And you know, and how do you philosophically justify that kind of thing? Well, you say what is a what does a person consist of? Speech or thinking, and infants not really capable of that. And so therefore, they're not really full people. What about a meat facet? Ah, you get into the issues like that as well. Okay? So this sense that we have that every person is equally a person in an absolute sense means that whatever a person consists of isn't something that's malleable, isn't something that's flexible, that varies from person to person. Now this, of course, creates a problem because can you identify any characteristic that all human beings have that doesn't vary from person to person? No. Not observably. No. So you end up with the following unfortunate tension, which is like this. If you can say what a person consists of, then that means in some sense some people are more people than others. 
And if you want to say that all people are absolutely equally people in every sense, then you have to say that there's this transcendent, unknowable human essence that we don't know what it is, but that confers upon you all the moral you know, benefits of being a person. But there isn't really middle ground. What? What if we know this thing that is? Well, you feel free to come up with something that is clearly describable and identifiable about people, whether it is a psychological trait, a physical trait, I don't care what, and that does not vary between people. Are you just associating, like, saying that one is better than the other? No, I'm saying there's a trade-off. Yeah, but then if you if you have all components of something, right? So we had that pouch, and there were more holes in that pouch. It could still be considered a pouch used for something else, right? Right. So consisting of some, like the same things, but the traits of it, just like person, you're saying that. If they're brain dead, they're less of a person, right? Mm-hmm. If you're saying that all people are equal, then you're you're saying the traits of them are the same, they just lack in certain areas, right? No, if you're saying all people are equal, you're not going to be able to find a trait. People have been trying to do this for thousands of years. Like, but what, what is, is human? That's exactly the point. What is humanity? You're just, you're just using a word. What is humanity? If you use the pouch, yeah? If we, if we do enough things, sorry, using your pouch. Right? <laughs> so if we do enough things to this pouch, bake holes in it, remove the zipper, right? And at some point you say, you know what? This is so worthless as a pouch, it's not a pouch anymore, throw it away, right? Yeah. So the, the, the pouch exists on a range of like, a, 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 you know, really good pouches, mediocre pouches, lousy pouches, broken pouches, pouches that have yet to be made, but they're on the way to being made pouches, and then garbage pouches that you throw away, right? Mm-hmm. And the thing is, anytime you make something consist of identifiable parts that can vary, you can then make a hierarchy of better or worse versions of that thing. But so, that's subjective, right? No, it's a value judgment. Be, and, but that's what it's getting into. Anytime you say something consists of parts that can vary, then you are, then you are you're already making value judgments. In other words, if you wanna be completely value neutral, you can't actually say that anything is anything. You can just describe kind of like, um, very raw facts, such as soft, hard. You can't go beyond that. Because anytime you go beyond that and say, this makes this thing, or that makes that thing, you're actually making value judgments about what things are and aren't, and therefore what are better or worse versions of those things. So when you say, for instance, um, murder consists of these elements, right? You have an idea of what murder is, and there you're saying the, these elements, and if you have something that has all of those elements in ideal, well, that's like the ideal murder. In American law, it's called first-degree murder. And if it's missing some of those elements, but it's still pretty much murder, we call it second-degree murder. You know. And so you're making, by, by making something consist of identifiable components that can vary, you are making hierarchies. Now, if the thing that you're talking about is a good thing, then you have, you know, the more ideal it is, the better it is. If the thing you're talking about is a bad thing like murder, then the more ideal it is, the worse it is. So first-degree murder is, is much more evil in most people's minds than, say, second-degree murder. But you're making value judgments. So this is, now, whether you're right or wrong is beside the point. And we're learning, you know, we're learning Torah, so we're learning what the Torah's view on the matter is. But if you're saying that a person consists of faculties, then the better those faculties function, what kind of a person do you have? You have a better person. And the worse those faculties function, the worse person. And you, if the func- faculties fall below uh, some threshold, we could say that we have something that fails to be a person. But didn't you say the means of accomplishing something? So like, if you were 
a mute person, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe what you're meant to accomplish was through not having, like, not being able to speak. So that faculty seemingly mm -hmm. isn't there, right? But, like, because it's to help you accomplish that. So, but, but, but the issue is, the issue is what you, what does the human being consist of? Not what faculties are. If you're saying a human being consists of faculties, what makes a human being is how good they are at doing a set of things. And therefore, the ones who are really good at those set of things, they're really human. The ones who are bad at those sets of things are really subhuman or less than human. Right? Now, if you say what it is to be human is not whether you, how good you are at accomplishing things. Now, happens to be human beings can accomplish things, which is nice. But that's not what makes you a human being. Then that's really great for like equalizing every human being. But it's really bad if you want to now say, well, what makes you a human being? What do you identify? What do you point to and say, this is what, this is what humanity is? What if you're just born from a human being? Yeah, but then that's just begging the question. You're just like, it's like, it's like I, know what, I know what pulls the second, the, 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 the third train on, the, on the, the, third, the third car on the train. The second car, yeah, but you didn't explain anything because how does the second car move, right? Yeah, what makes you human is that you have human parents. Okay, but what made them human? You didn't explain anything. You just moved the question around. <coughs> but maybe, yeah, we're human if we descended from Adam or Vishon. But so you still didn't explain what made him human. What made him human? Yeah. God decided. So it's just an arbitrary label. Um, no, we don't believe that it's arbitrary, but you so, don't have to know what it is that made him. But we know that God created a but, thing, called it. Fine, Adam. but then, you, but you're still not. You're still. You're still sacrificing the ability to say what it consists of. Right. You're still it. saying it's some ineffable, transcendent, whatever, and therefore I can't really tell you what it is, I have signs to know whether it's present, which is if you descend from one with it, then you have it. So if you descend from Adam and Chal, from Adam and Eve, then you're human. I don't know what makes you human, but if you're descended from them, you have this thing called humanity, and that gives you certain rights and responsibilities and privileges and blah, blah, blah. Does it have to be that you also have that thing, or is it just if you descend from them? Why is it, why is it that a human, Taurus as a human being has a certain moral significance that nothing else exists because a human being is something special. Well, what is special about a human being? If you're gonna start pointing to their ability to see, their ability to talk, their ability to walk, their ability to play music, or any combination thereof of any other faculty that human beings have, you are then going to have to also agree that human beings are ranked in degrees of whether or not how much, how human they are. And then you're going to have to set up whole curves of systems to like, you know, get the kind of morality you intuitively want with that together. And I'm not saying that you can't do that. I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm just saying that, that, that that's one side of the balance. The other side of the balance is you can say, no, well, human beings are all fundamentally human in the exact same way, but now I am forced to say that what makes you human is not something I can easily point to and identify. Because if I try and figure out what is that characteristic, there's actually a, a non-Jewish philosopher who makes the following argument that if you take the ability... The, the psychological abilities of a human um, child up to the age of two, you can find many animals that can function at that level. And therefore, if we take this faculty, humans consists of their faculties, then it turns out that some animals are more human than some people. Yes. And therefore, they make the following argument that if it's okay to kill animals below certain psychological thresholds of intelligence, self-awareness, etc., then it should be equally okay. Or the, converse. or the converse, but they're making that equivalence. Right. 
So again, I'm not, I'm right now, I'm just telling you that there's these two different ways. When you say something consists of, and then you identify specific things it consists of, you are then saying it can be, there are better and worse versions of, versions of it. And they are, have to, are ranked, and then there's a whole code of ethics and morality how to deal with that ranking. And to say that all of them are fundamentally the same means you're now ascribing some un- ineffable, unknowable, undescribable essence that confers upon you significance, but you can't point to what it is. So do the other Hasidic sources, sorry, then not say that there aren't these like constituents be- just like to avoid that issue? No, I'm going to explain what the other ones say soon. I just want to mention there's two different ways of thinking about it. Okay, and they're different. And human beings, by the way, tend to instinctively move to both. We Wait, find the both. Two different types of being that... that what makes using the analogy of human beings right now, what makes a human being a human being is their humanity, and then humanity is just this unknowable, ineffable, whatever. Or what makes you a human being is your particular certain distinctly human faculties, say thinking, understanding, humor, whatever it is, and then there's trade-offs between those two different ways of thinking. Yes. I feel like it's different for humans because my question is like a chicken and egg situation and we know that all 10 faculties have to be present in some form, whatever the ranking may be, in order for the thing to exist. But we, can, we also know that humans can come into the world possibly without whatever humanity is a normal human consists of. So in our context, can... Can nefesh, ruach, neshama even exist without the ten faculties, or they can still exist on undeveloped? Right. So you're getting at the an- you're getting at the answer, which is that nefesh, ruach, and neshama are not the person themselves, are they? No. No. Nefesh, ruach, and neshama are stages of the person's, or in this case, not the person's, the godly soul's development. So if I switch my terminology ever so slightly, I can resolve this problem. I say like this: What does a human being consist of? Is this unknowable human essence? Okay, what does human development consist of? Certain faculties. So think about it like this, yeah? We differentiate between two different things. Let's say, for instance, and the reason I'm using murder is, is because murder has to do with the fact that you're a human being, right? The Torah law differentiates between killing animals and killing people. Okay, so what makes murder wrong is that you are a human being. Okay, what faculties does that humanity consist of? It doesn't consist of any faculties. It's this unknowable essence that God puts into human beings as human beings. Fine. On the other hand, okay, if, going back to yesterday's class, if you have a person in a vegetative state, or for that matter, an infant, the moment they're born, what distinctly human faculties are present? The answer to that is nothing. And so if you want the human being to indicate that they're human being, to reveal that they're a human being, to function the world in ways that are unique to human beings, that can be measured in terms of how they, how they, what faculties they have and how they use them. So we can say like this. Murdering someone doesn't matter how smart they are, how intelligent they are, how functional they are, that, you know, the, you know, their gender, that doesn't make a difference. But now if I talk about, for instance, um, whether or not you should be, um, you know, ru- whether or not you should be living on your own, 
or living under someone else's care, well, faculties now do make a difference. Right? If whether you should be entitled to make moral judgments for society or whether you shouldn't, faculties make a difference. Right? So your ability to act in the world as a human being consists of faculties. Your humanity doesn't consist of faculties. Being a human being doesn't consist of anything other than this unknowable essence of being human. Functioning as a human being does consist of faculties, and those faculties can in fact be ranked. And so some people function as better human beings than others. Okay? So for instance, children are not, do not function as well as human beings as adults. Okay? Does that make them less human? No. So the thing is we have to differentiate between being and acting. Being and doing. Yes. So can the soul levels without all ten, can they not develop or they cannot function? Develop, developing is moving to higher levels of functioning. That's what I mean by developing. And you need all ten to develop. Yeah. So when we speak about the nefesh, ruach, and neshama, we spoke about those yesterday, those parallel, remember, in human beings, stages of human development. So childhood consists of a bunch of things. Right? Those things, ha- you know, if, you know, if you're not... If you're not if, 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 let's use the example of, of speaking. If speaking is not happening as you move through childhood, then something is wrong with the childhood, right? Is something wrong with the person as a human being? No. They're not less human, but their childhood is a less, it's, it's a less um, effective childhood. And that's the thing. These terms, nefesh, ruch, and shaman, they're not talking about the godly soul itself. The godly soul itself, its essence, is its godly being. Its ability to manifest and function in the world has three progressive stages, and those stages consist of faculties. And if those faculties aren't functioning, yeah, then your, your soul is less able to function, it's less manifest, it's less developed. And it could even be completely undeveloped, just like there's a person in a vegetative state, there's still a person, so too there could be a godly soul in a human state. What do I mean by a human state? Not even a nefesh. Nothing godly is actually functioning. All that's functioning are the human things and none of the godly faculties. So a human being has human faculties that are distinctly human, let's say thinking, understanding, humor. Yeah? And they also have faculties that they share with plants. Right? When a person is in a vegetative state, what happens to all the human faculties? They're not functioning. Not that they've lost their humanity, which is this other thing, but they've lost their ability to function in ways that human beings function. And it's only a newborn infant there are human faculties. Which ones of those are developed on, at birth? Thinking, understanding, humor. Even facial recognition doesn't kick in yet. But that doesn't mean they're lacking in the unknowable humanity. In a similar way, the godly soul, what makes it godly, it does not consist of any faculties at all. All godly souls are godly. But its ability to function to manifest its godliness in life has three progressive stages of development and those do consist of faculties. And if those faculties are not functioning properly, then you can say, yes, this soul is less developed than that soul. This soul is less functional than that soul. This soul is capable of less than that soul. Yes? Um, I don't know if it's important, but how do we recognize what you call unknown? You can't. Humanity? You can't. So here's the thing. So... For the, for, so um, there are many things that we cannot directly recognize, and therefore we have, um, we use 
we use signs. So for instance, just simply, when you go to the grocery store, can you look at food and tell whether it's kosher or not? No. No. So, so there's, there's a sign on the package that says whether it's kosher or not, right? So someone, what's that, what's that, what's that, what's that, one second. Someone else who does know says, I'm gonna make a sign and you can use that sign. In fact, when you look at an animal, can you see its kosherness or non-kosherness? Can you see the kosherness of a cow and the non-kosherness of a pig? No. No, you can't. Because you can't see the well, signs. But the stomachs are signs of kosher. You could even, 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 let's oh, so use these are examples. Not, uh, if you look at a cow and you look at a donkey, can you see that one is kosher and one is not kosher? No, you can't see that. What you know is that God said if it has split hooves, it might be kosher. But if it doesn't have split hooves, it's not kosher. So you're using that as a sign of kosher. Okay. When it, when it, when, can, you, can you see an infection without a microscope? Can you have see signs of infection without a microscope, right? So we have a differentiation between thing, the thing itself and the signs of the thing. So what's the difference between sign and a constituent part? Well, a constituent part means this is what makes up the thing. A sign of the thing is somebody who knows about the thing has told you that whenever this thing is present, this other thing will be present and can use that to track it. That's how we do a lot of observation about the world. But wouldn't a sign end up functioning as a constituent part? No, 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 no. No. Like, and, like, like, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't. <coughs> the sign just becomes like... It could be completely arbitrary, yeah. It's completely arbitrary, but then some people have that sign more, some people have that sign less, and you're stuck in the same problem. No, because you can just, you can, no. So, for instance, the, the, sign si- the sign of humanity is that you were born to human parents. Going all the way back to Adam that's the sign. Well, it's pure lineage. Pretty easy. Well, so here's the rule: is that when you what, is the, the rule, the rule with Judaism is that Judaism deals with reality, not with hypotheticals. Which is when that happens, then happen. when that happens, I didn't say if, I said when that happens, then people will look into the sources and figure out where is the precedent for dealing with that. But since as of right now, all human beings, other than Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, were born to human beings, we don't have that problem. And so we'll leave it at that. And in case of Jews, it's very simple: if your mother was a Jew. Or you went through a procedure which reenacts the giving of the Torah Mount Sinai known as conversion, then you have a godly soul. And if you didn't, then you don't. Does that mean that is, those are signs of, those are not actually seeing. So I can't look at you and see your godly soul. Maybe there's prophets who can. But God said, if you want to know someone has a godly soul, trace their mothers all the way back. If their mothers were standing at Mount Sinai, then they're a Jew. And if their mother wasn't standing at Mount Sinai, but they went through a procedure which reenacts Mount Sinai, which consists of immersing in a mikvah, um, circumcision if it's a male, and accepting the Torah mitzvahs like the Jewish people did in Mount Sinai um, in the presence of someone who can verify that halachically, which is a Jewish court, then that person also is a godly soul. Those are not seeing the thing. Those are signs of the thing. Yeah. Okay. Yes. That's, that? that's a good paraphrase. Okay, um, it's better than what he actually says. What he actually says is more, far more vicious. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I thought so. So, yes. um, is that God making a value judgment of like, if we're saying that, you know, we don't kill people because of the value of people, we don't kill all people equally because people all have the same value, why is God um, so much more threatening in the consequence to killing an orphan or a widow? I will give than, you one answer. 
Yeah. I'll give you one answer. It's not the only answer. The Rambam says that there are two factors that cause the biblical punishments to be more severe. Mm-hmm. One is the severity of the crime. So a, a more heinous violation deserves a more serious punishment. Mm-hmm. The other thing he says is the more frequent the violation, either because people have a stronger desire or opportunity presents itself, also warrants a stronger punishment. Okay. So... It is not the case that oppressing widows and orphans is somehow worse than oppressing anybody else. Oppression, you know, if you, if you cause the same amount of oppression, it's bad. However, okay. widows and orphans are more easily oppressed. And therefore, because human beings react and respond to, um, you know, uh, conditioning, if you, if you make a very serious punishment for something people are very likely to do, that serves to um, uh, that serves as, a, as creating this kind of social norm against doing it. And so Ram says many times when the Torah gives you a more severe punishment, it's not because it's necessarily more severe than something else. It's just that it, the Torah feels that it's people are more likely to do it. So that would be the answer there. Um, and in fact, remember, the Ram actually says that widows and orphans, especially in agricultural societies, are almost always severely disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. And um, taken and there's stories in Tanakh about this even. And so the Torah goes out of its way to impress upon people how bad it is, whereas oppressing you know, the rich landowner is not something that we're concerned is going to happen too frequently. No, if you ended up doing that, it would be bad also. Yes? So this whole thing about seeing not the presence of something, but what could look like a sign for the presence of something, do you think that's kind of like, I was just trying to look, but I couldn't find it. It might be the Chofetz Chaim saying how... Um, it's not only that that you're that you followed a mitzvah of like eating kosher, so uh, you're looking at someone who keeps strict kashrut, but they they eat very gluttonously, and so really they're not following the mitzvah, but it could look like a sign that they are. But no, really those are two. Se- those are two separate mitzvahs. There's kosher and not being gluttonous. Those are just two separate things. They're both sins, but they're just two separate sins. That's a, they're not in terms of the core idea of how devout they are. They could, they could the, the, yeah, but that's a different God. idea. This is, this is just simply the idea that if God knows who has human essence and who doesn't, he, God can tell you this is, the way to fig- this is the way to tell. doesn't mean you can see it. If God says this is, these are the people who have a godly souls, I know you can't see them, but this is the way you should tell. Okay? But what this, this chapter is talking about is not the, the, what, what, can, what the godly soul consists of. It, doesn't consist, it, it consists of this unknowable godly essence. What it... What it's talking about is what is its functioning, what is its ability to act in the world consist of? What are its stages of just like human development is your ability to function in the world? What are the stages of development of the godly soul? What do they consist of? Yeah. Why do you intuitively associate the development with the being? Like when you see a chimpanzee that knows how to sign language communicate, like why do we feel like, oh, that's such a human-like chimpanzee? (sighs) Because... We have two things that two things that God gave human beings, which run at cross purposes, and it requires a lot of I don't know depth and maturity to be able to put them together. One is our desire to categorize, classify everything, okay, and our other and and, and interact with things, okay, and the other is. Um, a desire 
and and, and uh, a sensitivity to I guess what you could call the idea of sacredness beyond the mundane, beyond the knowable, beyond everyday. So we have a tendency that human beings, on the one hand, want to want to like pick up on the fact that there's something special about this that can't be reduced to other things. It can't be limited by other things. Now, you'll see that because people, people apply that to anything, right? That's a, that's a human trait. And on the other hand, we really want to be able to categorize and classify things because it allows us to really interact and function relate. And this, this causes a lot of tension. I'll just give you an example from a religious point of view, okay? There are many people that get very disturbed when you have a class and you start talking about God. Do you know why? Why would that disturb people? No, that, 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 why is that disturbing? I just like, I don't, I don't agree with what you're saying. Like, like deeply disturbed. I've had people. Yeah, cognitive dissonance. On the one hand, we're talking about God like God is like a cup. Like we're breaking the God and God is like this. On the other hand, like what about the sacredness? Yeah. But there are other people who have that about other stuff, right? If you talk to certain people about like, about like environmentalism and you're just purely pragmatic about the fact that, you know, human beings should conserve resources so we don't want to die and you're like, and you're making everything in terms of th- that, some people just get very disturbed because like, well, what about the sacredness of nature? So I'm not getting into like, you know, I mean, obviously being an Orthodox Jew, I have my particular views on the matter, right? But human beings have these two conflicting things, which is a sense that there's a sacredness in reality where people locate that as one thing and that reality should really be understood and made sense of so we can interact with it. And that causes a whole bunch of problems. So on the one hand, like, I want to be able to really understand what makes a person a person. And I see some people really function as people and that really helps them relate to them as a person. And then I see a chimpanzee doing that. Oh, so they're also like a person. Mm-hmm. And the more I do that, the more I move away from this idea of the sacredness. But then when I get the sacredness, the things start to become untouchable and unknowable. And, you know, and people all tend to struggle with that in all sorts of different ways. I mean, this a very a very banal example of this is when the spouse asks the other spouse, why do you love me? Right, because what's the good answer to that? You shouldn't be able to describe it. Okay, so, so you say, oh, there's nothing about you. There's, no, there's nothing defined. No, there's nothing. No. So you're like, 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 on the one hand, like, like, you should be able to say something about me that, that, that you find so appealing. But on the other hand, if anything I can say basically exists in you know, a, a large enough minority of the population, so you just love me for that, you don't love me for me. But if you say, I just love you for you, it sounds like... And I'm, I'm, there, there's this tension in how God created us, is that we have this desire to make things very tangible, and we also have a sense that there should be some unknowable and sacredness. Okay? Now, obviously the reason for that is because God wants us to serve him using both of those things, but God made us that way, so even if we're not religious or even if we're not serving God, we tend to have that applied to everything else. And that's what creates this problem over here. When this chapter is not talking about what makes your soul your soul or makes your soul godly, it's talking about what allows your soul to function. And it has three stages of development and each stage of development consists of 10 faculties. And if those faculties are functioning properly, that stage of development is going well and you should be entrusted with more stuff. Like we allow adults to do things we don't allow kids to do. But if your development is not, then we shouldn't be entrusted with that kind of stuff because you're not sufficiently developed. It doesn't make you less on some, this is a deeper absolute level, but it does make you less functional. And so that's what, the reconciliation. Many Hasidic discourses are talking about the being of our godly selves. And what this chapter is talking about is the functioning of the godly self. So why does it use the word, that word? Which word? 
because it's what does the function consist of? The nefesh, which is a level of the soul's function, or the ruach, which is a level of the soul's function, or the nisham, which is a level of the soul's function, consists of 10 faculties. But the soul itself, it has them, but doesn't consist of them. Just the same way I have a jacket, I don't consist of my jacket. What? We're going to get to that. Wait, the soul doesn't consist of these levels. That's right, which is why actually in the Talmud, when it mentions levels, it says that these are names the soul is called, meaning modes that it can operate in. But the soul itself is none of these. Are we talking about the godly soul? It's all godly soul. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm moving fluidly back and forth between the humanity and godly soul because humanity is a good analogy. But, we're about. but the, the actual core thing is a godly soul. But you could say the same thing, that there's huma- humanity has a human essence and it has three stages of psychological development. The godly soul has this godly essence and there are three stages of its functioning in the world. Nefesh, Ruach, and Hashemah. Yeah. This humanity that we have now, what it is, is contained in the godly soul? No. What's no. contained in it? The human soul. When you say yeah. human soul, and the animal soul? Yeah, well, in Tanya it's called the animal soul. Yeah. But yeah. But animals don't have it. It's called the animal soul because of a similarity to animals. But it, animals don't have it because an aspect of this is the, is the ability to be self-aware, free, volitch, uh, vol, volitional, moral, have a sense of the sacred. Something that is, applies to – those are, those are functions that are unique to the soul. That's not unique to Jews. Non-Jews have those as well. Mm-hmm. Right? There's no reason why a non-Jew can't have you know, any – and they do. Okay. Fine. So how far do we get today? Exactly to the comma. Said. Ah, but we have five minutes left. I know. Okay. Questions. Corresponding to the supernal ten spherot. Okay. So, these faculties, are they the ten spherot? No. No, prove it from the text, please. Corresponding. Corresponding. Corresponding means that they're not the same thing. Okay. Are they similar? Yes. Let's prove it from the text. Corresponding. Corresponding. <laughs> same, but not the similar, but not the same. Okay. So let us let us play a little game. I will tell you something, and you tell me the corresponding thing. Okay. Ready? Okay. London. <laughs> what well, Paris? That's right. Paris corresponds to London. How does Paris correspond to London? They're both big cities in Europe. Okay, we can be more specific. They're both capital cities in Europe. There you go. Okay. Yeah? Okay. Um, coffee. How do they correspond to each other? Hot drinks. What? Mormons can't have Mormons can't have Yeah, but the list of what Mormons can't have is quite broad. Why did everyone jump to tea? A little more specific, right? No one was like, tea, coffee, and hard liquor. Right? That wasn't what people went through. What? And what way, what way do they correspond to each other? Hot drink. They're both hot. What else? What? No, they're They're... They're not just that they're both hot. They, the social environments in which we drink them tend to be the same, right? Seven glasses of the world, like the world social structure developed around like seven kinds of drinks, like gin, whiskey. Right, but 
tea and coffee tend to be pretty interchangeable yeah, in that. Right, so if you right, in other words, the same environment in which and and, and, and scenario in which coffee is an acceptable way to thing to drink, right? You could substitute that for whereas substituting out that for gin totally changes what's going on. <laughs> Do you want coffee? No, I'd rather have some gin. Well, it's seven thirty in the morning. <laughs> okay, um, okay, okay. Um, let's do let's do a few other things. Books. What corresponds to books? Computer. What? Magazines. Okay, now you're thinking of things that are similar in different ways. They have here something, something. But think about how what we've done up until now. We we took the same thing and said, okay, if I change the if I change the context, what's well, another example of the same kind of thing? Right? Capital cities in Europe. We, right? So then I can sw- switch out Paris for London, right? Drinks that we drink in a way similar to coffee, switch out coffee for tea. What? Well, now this really depends on what we mean by book now, doesn't it? If we mean book by something we read for casual entertainment, then I guess magazine could switch out, right? But if the context in which I meant was um, the main way we store information to pass it along, right? We could say the internet, we could say scrolls, right? (laughs) Right. Do you see what I'm saying? In other words, the idea of corresponding is actually quite interesting because what you're doing is you're taking something from one context, applying it to a different context, right? And trying to keep something constant through that transition, right? So now, what does that mean about these faculties, these abilities, these ways of functioning that the godly soul has at every stage of development, are they the same as the ten spherot? No. No, but if you took the ten spherot and then you put them in the context of a godly soul functioning, what would you have? Those things. Those ten faculties, right? Like if you take capital city in Europe out of England and put it into France, you, you get, instead of London, you get Paris. Okay. So well, this is extremely important. People often use the term ten spheres to talk about themselves and their own abilities. Do you have ten spheres? No. No. You have, and even your godless soul doesn't have ten spheres. What does it have? Ten faculties. Ten faculties which correspond correspond to the ten spheres. They are not the same thing. It has faculties. It does not consist of faculties. But it's developed. Right? We have to be very careful with our language. That's what gets us into, into saying things that are like sound nice, but then end up contradicting each other all, all the time. Right? I have a jacket. I do not consist of a jacket. <laughs> However, right, my respectable presentation as a rabbi does consist of a jacket. It does. Which is why I wear one. The code of Jewish law um, says that a respectable dress involved, for men involves an overlayer, and in every society, what? And in every society, there is the overlayer. So in, in, in Western society, there it is a jacket. In other societies, there were overrobes, there were tunics. In ancient times, it was the talus. But if you, you wore a vest, would that work? That's an interesting question. I'm not getting into that. Or a sweater. Okay. <laughs> no, but, but there's this idea that, 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 that this, which is why the Code of Jewish Law speaks about like when, 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 when engaged in certain religious activities, one should make sure to put on that overlayer. That's why some communities actually the chazan wears a talus. Yeah, there's this idea. 
Um, well, weddings usually hold at night, so they're usually not a talus, but... Like a kittel. Kittel's a slightly different idea. Okay. So, I mean, there might be people who disagree, but that, that, that isn't, you know, to my understanding, that is in fact why. Which is why, like, when I'm teaching, I don't take off my jacket, even though it's more comfortable when I'm sitting at home. It's not like I walk around all day wearing a jacket. I mean, I do it because I'm teaching all day, but... Right? <laughs> One time the Bachram at the men's program saw me take off my jacket in the middle of class to make a point about something, and they were like, they realized that for months they'd never seen me without a jacket. Like, wow, it's so different. (laughs) Now, some people have made the argument to me that I should wear a tie because that's part that the respectable dress consists of a tie. But um, I, 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 that was when I was younger and more easily swayed by what other people thought. Then I stopped. (laughs) Okay, but you see what I'm saying is that when you you could say something consists of, it doesn't mean I myself consist of, right? Okay, my learning consists of all sorts of things, but I am not my learning. Right? My functional development, either as a human being or as a godly being, can may consist of things, but it doesn't mean I, as a being, actually consists of those things. Okay? So what does the godly soul consist of? What does the godly soul itself consist of? It consists of some unknowable godly essence. But what does its functioning consist of, regardless of whatever level of functioning it's on? Ten faculties. And what do we know about those ten faculties? They correspond to the spheres. And the more those 10 faculties are functioning on whatever level of development you are, the better you are as a functional godly being, but not the more godly you are in essence. Okay. So what do we need to learn tomorrow before I go? What's left to explain? How do they correspond? What are the 10 spheros? And what, what, what other words? You point out a very important word, which is supernal. Supernal. If you're saying they're supernal ten spheres, what does that imply? What? There are ten spheres that are not supernal, apparently. Otherwise, why do you have to say that these ones are supernal? Uh-huh. And then once we know that, then we have to talk about what does it mean they correspond and why do they correspond? Yeah. I, yeah. It's going to take two weeks. Really? Or a month. Uh-huh. How long did chapter two take? 17 classes. Okay. Okay. It all depends on how much you want to understand. Yep. I actually have more than 17 classes. And we hope you enjoy it.